fuckers. Welcome to No Prize from God, episode 19. No Prize from God features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. I am your host, Ryan J. Downey, and my guest this episode is Blackie Lawless of WASP. If you're enjoying the conversations we're having on No Prize from God, the best thing you can do right now to help this podcast is to go into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and leave a five-star rating and a nice little review. Those really do help in terms of visibility for the podcast and people discovering what we're doing. Also, be sure to check out previous episodes with great guests like Nurgle of Behemoth, Dwid Hellion of Integrity, Karen Crisis of Gospel of the Witches, Sister Kate of the Sisters of the Valley, Tim McTagg of Under Oath, Ryan Clark of Demon Hunter, Jesse Leach of Killswitch Engage, and many more. No Prize from God is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network, so check out some of our other podcasts, like Speak and Destroy, a podcast about Metallica. Does WASP stand for White Anglo-Saxon Protestants? We Are Sexual Perverts? Winged Assassins? Blackie Lawless, founder and frontman for the legendary heavy metal band, once said it stood for, We Ain't Sure, Pal. Whatever the origin of the acronym, there's no doubt about Blackie's status as an elder statesman of hard rock. To say he's lived a rock and roll lifestyle would be an understatement. The son of a preacher raised in a Baptist household, teenage Blackie Lawless hung out with Ace Frehley and witnessed the birth of Kiss. Before he'd even turned 20, he auditioned for Johnny Thunder's spot in the New York Dolls, finishing a tour with them after the legendary guitarist quit the band. He formed a number of projects in L.A., including Sister, with future Motley Crue bassist Nikki Six, and at various points, other future members of Wasp. When a group of senators' wives, including Tipper Gore, formed the Parents Music Resource Council in the 80s, Wasp was one of the primary targets of the PMRC, held up as an example of the depravity of rock and roll music, thanks to the band's gruesome onstage theatrics, which blended Alice Cooper and Kiss. With a saw blade on his crotch, Blackie belted out Wasp anthems like Animal, I Wanna Be Somebody, Wild Child, and my personal favorite, Blind in Texas. Guitarist Chris Holmes, the mean man who was in and out of the Wasp lineup for a long time, immortalized hair metal excess with his drunken pool scene in Penelope Spheres' documentary, The Decline of Western Civilization Part Two: The Metal Years, guzzling vodka between bleak and maudlin utterances as his mother looked on. In 1992, Wasp issued The Crimson Idol, a dense concept album that stepped away from the shock rock of the band's gold-selling debut and its gold follow-up, The Last Command, in favor of expanded musicality and deep emotional themes. Like many heavy metal bands, Wasp often dealt in subject matter familiar to Christianity. Apocalypse, Judgment, God, the Devil. That's no less true on the band's 2015 album Golgotha. Named for the Hebrew word meaning place of the skull, and the name of the place where Christians believe Christ was crucified. Only now, Blackie is leading the band as a full-on Christian himself. A baby boomer, Blackie tells me about seeing the Beatles explode into the scene. Kiss, Alice Cooper, his Baptist upbringing, Heavy Metal's obsession with faith, the devil, and God, the years he spent dabbling in the occult, how the church flourished under persecution, retracing Paul's steps in ancient cities, predestination and Calvinism, spiritual warfare, why he won't perform certain songs anymore, and indoctrination versus thinking for yourself. Blackie was a fantastic guess, and I have to warn you, if you're adverse to hearing people quote chapter and verse, you might want to brace yourself. Whatever your stance on Blackie's beliefs, there's no denying his intelligence, his talent, and his stature as a heavy metal icon. So here it is, my conversation with Blackie Lawless of the band Wasp. This is No Prize from God. (laughs) 
kid around the time of the PMRC thing and had my mm-hmm. and that was you know peak wasp for me and then I was uh, my first job out of high school I was a clerk in a record store this is in Indianapolis Indiana where I grew up and it was right around the time Crimson Idol came out and mm-hmm. that record you know I was somebody who uh, lost a parent young and uh, it, it was just, there was a there was something about the Crimson Idol that really connected with me and I was you know I'd been familiar with Wasp of course through the 80s uh, but then that record was just uh, you know and it came out around the same time that like grunge was happening and gangster rap right. was happening it was just such a a different sort of record you know from from an artist that I already liked but but I, mm-hmm. I felt had so many more layers of depth to it so when I yeah when I saw that you were revisiting the Crimson Idol and then with this um, you know my understanding of of uh, where you've been and your walk, so to speak. Uh, yeah, just made, I was like, man, I, w- I got to get Blackie Lawless on the podcast. <laughs> and, 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 it's, right. and it's been happening where I've had pe- people who are familiar with the podcast who are telling me, like, have you ever uh, ever thought about talking to Blackie from Wasp? And someone said that to me actually two days ago. And I said, yeah, he's on the calendar for Tuesday. It's, you know. Small world. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. Uh, so, yeah. So, let's uh, take me back to the beginning. I... I understand uh you know you were born and raised in staten island actually i was born in florida oh born in florida and we yeah we moved to staten island when i was six and um so i i've always said my formative years or a lot of my formative years were in new york because um i mean the beatles came over when i was living there i turned that place upside down i mean if the world thought that they had a shot in the arm from what was going on to watch that earthquake that happened in New York city. It was, it was surreal and it was, it left quite an effect on me, you know, and then, you know, I'm a huge baseball guy, you know, my dad takes me to Yankee stadium for the first time. And, you know, now I'm a bought and paid for Yankee fan, you know, so, (laughs) you know, it's, um, you know, all those things that make up the, complex thing that is me you know so but then after we were there a few years we went back to florida so i've had i've had an interesting exposure i mean i'm the kind of person i can float in and out of both of those cultures and feel totally at home because i understand both of them really really intimately Mm. And that's given me a huge advantage over the years because um, when you look, usually, I mean, there's a prejudice, you know, one to another or one towards another in that particular sense. And um, when I was, when we first went there, I was so young, I didn't understand it, you know, as far as that there had to be differences. So for me, it's just, you know, the eyes of a child. You just walk on in and like, okay, what's this place got to offer? I mean, you got to understand, and I am not exaggerating here, that literally, figuratively in every way, where I lived in Florida, my backyard was a swamp. <laughs> and I mean, I am not joking. I'm not saying that, you know, to to create some sort of... Uh, you know, poetic picture here of how it is. No, my backyard was a swamp and complete with panthers 
and things <laughs> wow. of that sort. Oh, yeah. Wow. And then the next thing I see is the skyline of Manhattan. So you talk about a little bit of culture shock. You know, but still, at the age of six, you, it doesn't hit you as hard. I just remember thinking it was the coolest thing I had ever seen. You know, because the first time I saw the skyline was at night. So seeing that was just like, wow, nothing could be better than this. You know, and um, it had a profound effect on me. So, you know, I like I said, I think most of my formative years were spent there. And then we went back to Florida after that. And, you know, and so here I am now. But uh, it was just the, the the introduction, if you the orientation into to coming into life was it was pretty interesting like you said uh, you know that's allowed you to be able to navigate comfortably in both of those worlds and then add to that you know skipping way way ahead obviously but add to that you know west la and hollywood and all of that um mm -hmm. you know because i can for, for myself you know i've been in southern california now for 17 18 years and grew up in indiana so i can relate in in terms of feeling uh, it's like you, it's like you're comfortable in each place, and then you're also a little different in each place. Well, when I the first came here, I hated it. Mm. I mean, the first year and a half I was here, I couldn't stand it. You know, because I came. You got to remember, people that come from the East Coast are far, far more provincial than people in the rest of the United States. And I can tell you that for a fact because all the years of having toured here, you get around, you meet people, you see how they are. So that provincial attitude that comes that's a fancy word for for prejudice <laughs> everything else. And what yeah. you do is you I came out here with the same snotty New York attitude that everybody else has, you know. Oh, the people are phony, can't find a good pizza, you know, all that and I mean it was it wore on me. It really did and I hated it. And then one day I was driving up over Coldwater Canyon. Um for those that don't know what that is, it's I was coming from the Beverly Hills side going into the San Fernando Valley. Mm -hmm. And you get up on top of the hill, and it had just rained a little bit in the night before, which was an anomaly in itself because, like the song says, it never rains here to speak of. And the, the valley was clear, and it was pristine, and it was early on a Sunday morning. And I looked at the place, and I, and I, and I saw the valley, and I thought, you know what? This place ain't so bad after all. Maybe this might work. And so, you know. 40 years later here i am <laughs> wow yeah I, i've i've over the years uh, come across both in interviews with you and with him uh that you were friends with ace freely in mm -hmm. in new york as as teenagers what can you tell me a little yeah. bit about about that and the the shenanigans that you probably got up to <laughs> well you know i uh, to put it in a nutshell i was fortunate enough to see that band being born and that, too, had a profound effect on me because I saw the Gene and Paul ran that band with an iron fist. And I, you know, here I am, 18 years old, I'm taking notes, hmm. you know, and I'm writing down. I'm like a sponge. I'm writing down everything I'm seeing and hearing. And Yeah, I remember um, they always said the band is like a car and there's there's two guys in the front and two in the back. <laughs> Well, yeah. I never, I never saw that <laughs> quote, but I can, I understand what you're saying. Let's put that to yeah. the point where there would be things that I saw sometimes that would make me want to bite nails in half. And I thought if I was talked to that way, uh, things wouldn't go well. 
let's put it that way, you know, so, you know, but nevertheless, like I said, I was fortunate enough to see this thing being born at a, at a very early age, well, in the beginning, and uh, it too had a profound effect on me, you know, so, you know, again, being, trying to be a sponge, and I guess everybody is at that age, you know, but especially if it's something you're attuned to and you think you want to do, um, you I didn't realize at the time what it would become. All I knew is that there was a thing there. There was an energy that they had, and it was it was intoxicating. I mean, it really was. It was fun to be around. I remember Paul Stanley one time. They were they were doing a rehearsal one day, and we were just talking after you know they they were taking a break, and he said to me, he says, you know what? He says, I'll talk about Led Zeppelin. I'll talk about Black Sabbath. I'll talk about any band you want to talk about because we're going to be bigger than all of them. Now, when most people would make a statement like that, you would take that as bragging, Mm -hmm. you know, or some guy stuck on himself or, you know, that his ego won't quit and things like that. When he said that, there was no bragging in him. There was a conviction in his eye. And I'm not saying this looking back all these years later. I'm telling you the impact it had on me at the moment. Mm -hmm. Because I can remember specifically looking in his eye when he said that. This guy was on a mission. He was not playing around. And that always stuck with me. And it's, you know, those are the kind of things. You know, I was brought up, you know, a baby boomer like everybody else in America. Work hard, uh, you know, just stay with it, be tenacious. Uh, you'll get what you want in the end, you know. And I thought this guy is—he's the epitome of this. This guy ain't taking no prisoners. So that—that, that, like I said, had a huge effect on me. So the role of uh, of faith in the household, you know, I, I my understanding is that you know a little bit on the fundamentalist side. Fill fill me in. What was the what was that had part of your environment? Like? Yeah, had an uncle that was a preacher. My dad was Sunday school superintendent. My grandfather was a deacon. So when the doors was open, I was there. Mm. And um, that meant twice on Sundays, once on Wednesday. And not to mention the culture of the the business side, you know, that you see, you know, like I said, grandfather being a deacon, uh, you know, business meetings, things like that. Uh, it was Again, you're privy to see the government of a church Mm. at a pretty early age. And uh, that, too, was was eye-opening. You know, because I would later end up playing, when we came back from New York and I was playing guitar, by that time, the the first real band that I was in, um, I was playing with a drummer whose father was the preacher in the church that we were in at that time. And, you know, we were together several years through high school. So it's interesting to see a preacher. Most people don't get to see a preacher outside the pulpit, really. Mm-hmm. You know, so they don't really know him like a regular person. But it's interesting when you see them and, you know, what they go through on a daily basis and things like that. And you go, wow, these guys are human, too. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> right. Uh, it, 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 that, too, is eye-opening. And what was your, you know, of course, when you're, so young, uh, just as you were saying, you know, that juxtaposition between the swamp in Florida and, and the New York skyline just was your reality. So it didn't seem 
strange, even even though it was exciting. Uh, you know, I think with the the kind of faith framework, a lot of us are raised with whatever it is. You know, there's a period where uh, it's a given and you kind of take it for granted, and then there's a period where you start to ask your own questions and form your own opinions and and so forth. Uh, when would you say that that first started with you, where you started to kind of scratch your head and go, "Wait a minute, I'm not I'm not sure about this whole thing." That's a two-part question, um, because to be completely honest, scratching your head is one thing, being selfish and wanting what you want is another. Hmm. So I'm saying that to say that I was in my late teens when that started to happen. I was about 17. And I was starting, you know, you're getting to the point where you're coming out of high school or getting ready to come out of high school. You know, and I can remember going to church when nobody else was going. I mean, if something was happening in the family where they just couldn't attend for whatever, not because they didn't want to, but, you know, something called them away for whatever reason, I'd go by myself. Nobody made me go. I went because I wanted to. And I was quite comfortable there. And then you start getting a little older and you said you start scratching your head. Well, that's, you know, a euphemism for saying that, you know, a lot of the, you're starting to think for yourself. You're coming into adulthood mm-hmm. where you can start to formulate your own ideas. And so you start asking questions. And the problem is, is because you don't know enough about the subject that you're dealing with. And quite honestly, where you're maybe attending church, they don't have answers either, and you're looking for somebody to give you answers. And you're not getting them, and you say, well, this is just not adding up. Now, you put a heavy dose of your own self-want, your own selfishness on top of that. That's cooking. That's a recipe to cook up a, a pretty good um, batch of let's get the heck out of here. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's really what happened. You know, because like I said, I make I make no bones about it. Because I could sit here and tell you that it was all indoctrination, and I became disenfranchised, and da 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 da. You know, we hear that story over and over. And I'm not saying that that wasn't part of it, because I've talked about that extensively over the years in interviews about what I refer to as indoctrination, and there is a lot of that. I, I won't try to sit here and tell you that it, it's not. But at the end of the day, you know, and we'll get into this a little bit later on, but these are questions you got to find for yourself because over a period of years you discover that literally come hell or high water, you're going to have to answer for this stuff. So it doesn't matter what Joe Blow did to you when you were 10 or 20 or whatever it may have been that warped or skewed your idea of what you think faith is, you're still going to have to answer for this. So, But at the age of, of 17 or 18, you're not thinking that far ahead because, like I said, you're so intent on what you want to do that uh, you become blinded to all that. And so when I left the church, like I said, I was about 18 when I left. And when I did, I didn't look back. And when I, I got to California, I was 20, and I went into studying the occult. I studied the occult for three years. I went as far away as you could possibly go. And, um, you know, an interesting thing happened 
when I was going to these masses that I was dating one of the girls who was pretty high up in the church at the time, and she was a witch. And I went over to pick her up one night. We were going to go out, and I walked in the door, and she was in the floor, or on the floor, in the middle of a pentagram, and she was chanting, doing an incantation. I knew what she was doing because I'd seen it a bunch of times already. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just sit off on the side here on the couch until she's done. And so I sit there for a few minutes, and I watched her, and I said to her, I said, well, what are you doing? I mean, I knew what she was doing, but I meant specifically, what are you doing? She goes, well, I'm looking for a new job, and so, you know, I'm chanting here so, you know, I can get some money coming in. And so I just watched her for a few more minutes, and it hit me. This girl is praying. And I thought, well, I've just swapped one set of institution or one set of institutionalized ideas for another. Mm-hmm. And when that, that hit me, I, I walked away from that as well. And then that's when I went into the wilderness for about 20 years after that. And when I did that, I went around because, again, I'm, I'm not liking the idea that I didn't get a lot of the answers that I was looking for that I would later refer to as institutionalized thinking. And when I say institutionalized thinking, I'm saying especially, now you got to remember, and I didn't mention this before, but being in the South, you could probably guess it was Southern Baptist, and that's exactly yeah. what it was. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah. there's there's things that are tucked, neatly tucked into a box there, you know, and you don't get out of the box, and you kind of stay there. And, and you know what? I'm not going to badmouth the Baptists, because as far as I'm concerned, these folks got more saved than any bunch going. You know, they they are what they're cracked up to be in that sense. But I was looking for other answers, and I didn't want to get it. And like I said, you put my own selfishness on top of it. And then, you know, again, you have me as the runaway and running away as far from God as I could. And so, like I said, I did that for 20 years, walking around thinking I was mad at God. And I realized one day, you know, and I'm sure it was the Holy Spirit moving on me, but I had this epiphany and I thought, you know what, I'm not mad at God. I'm mad at man. Mm. I'm mad at man for the answers I didn't get, for this quote-unquote institutionalized thinking. And when I was able to get that off my back, I then was able to to get myself back to kind of a level playing field Mm -hmm. because one of the things I had to do was I had to get a lot of that teaching out of me. Things that were either limiting or things that I felt that I was being browbeat with, you know, into thinking I'm a bad person, you know, so it was a lot of that that I had to get off of me, like I said, to then be able to to then come back to square one and start over again. And when I did that, that's when I started looking for myself. And I've really spent a career since that time, when it, be it writing records or my own reading or whatever, the one message that I've had for people more than probably anything is think for yourself. Don't let anybody else try to tell you what you should be thinking. If you want to go find these answers, start looking for yourself. And that's what I did. 
<laughs> immediately makes me makes me think about I Want to Be Somebody, <laughs> one of your most well-known songs. Well, you know, the funny part about that, that came from Barney Miller, the old TV show. <laughs> you know, wow. There was a quote. There, Ron Harris played the part of Detective Ron Glass. Or excuse me, the other way around. Ron Glass played uh, uh, Harris uh-huh. on the show. And he had written this book called Bob, Blood on the Badge. And one day he was going to go do a, <laughs> uh, a book signing, and a call came into the precinct, and and Barney says, uh, Harris, you and Dietrich, go check this out. And he says, but Barney, i got to go to my, my uh, book signing. He says, Harris, I said, now. And he slams the phone down. And he says, God, I want to be somebody. <laughs> you know? and I, I, and I never really knew funny. that. Yeah, it was funny, and I laughed, you know, but then I thought, you know what? There's probably a lot of people that feel that way, mm-hmm. you know? So there's, hey, a song is born. <laughs> you know, something you said earlier, and, and there's a bunch I want to dig into uh, that, you, that you went over already. You were talking about running away from God, and I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes. It's from Bono, uh, something he said to Rolling Stone in 2005. The quote is, the music that really turns me on is either running toward God or away from God. Both recognize the pivot that God is at the center of the jaunt. And I remember reading that quote and thinking, well, that explains much about all the music else that I, <laughs> you know, because I've, I've attracted, uh, in my life, I've been attracted to, you know, the artists who are either struggling with those uh, ideas or are fully committed in one direction or another, um, regardless of wherever I stood over the years at different points, that was always the, the music, especially that, that I was into. And I read that quote and I went, well, that explains it. <laughs> it well, does, let's, broaden, you know. let's broaden that thought a little bit. Matthew twelve thirty. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Hmm. You can... There's a line in the sand, and that line in the sand is everything that is in this world. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, that's Joshua in the Old Testament. But that's what he's saying. Here's the line in the sand. Everything, once you really, really come come to faith or come back to faith, once you really do that and that veil comes off of your eyes, you're going to see everything differently. And I mean everything. Nothing is immune. And when you say, the Bono was talking about, you're either running to it or from it, or the, the songs he liked. If you think about the genre that I'm in, mm-hmm. there has never, probably in the history of the world, ever been a genre that is so obsessed with the concept of faith, religion, God, Satan, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. it is just totally laced with it. The imagery, the lyrics, the song titles, I mean, they're obsessed with it, and they don't realize it. They're looking at what they think is they're playing around with something they think is either taboo or dark side, whatever they want to call it. And, uh, but they have no idea that they're making a, you know, a conscious choice one way or the other. And I'm not going to sit here and condemn anybody for doing that right this moment, you know, because 
it's it's a gateway to one and you're going to choose which way you're going to go but it's interesting that that genre would be so obsessed with this there's never been anything like it i mean we we all grew up with pop music pop music wasn't obsessed like this mm-hmm. you know i mean this and totally obsessed with it and where the appeared faith on my ear like you know as clear as i'm sitting here right now i heard the holy do you think how to be where you are to get to this point where you then just up and walk away no you stay right where you are and boy i stopped praying at that point and i just like i said i was already on my knees and i just sit there for a minute and i thought what did i just hear and what does that mean and i've i've learned over the years that if you ask god to repeat himself and you don't hear an answer you've already got your answer <laughs> that, that's yeah. god saying hey son i don't stutter you know yeah that so, that reminds me of the 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 quote uh or the saying rather uh, god answers all prayers sometimes the answer is no <laughs> right right well like i said more than anything i for myself and i don't know how many other people have found this but something happened just the other night and i was praying and i said lord did i hear you right you know and it's like you'll hear anything after that you know it's like i've already told you you heard me loud and clear you know, and it, it may be something that sounds so off the wall. You go, huh? Really? You know, and it's like you got to stop and kind of run it back in your head you and say, okay. You know, and, the, and after you've been doing this for a while, another thing you learn is be obedient first and ask questions later. Mm. And, and it also, uh, it, it makes me think about, uh, you know, you're talking about that obsession uh, in, the, in this particular genre of music and like you said i think you're absolutely right that um it's almost unwitting but it's there you know seeing different artists and creative people a lot of times who had difficult childhoods or or different backgrounds where they struggled with different things you know wrestling with uh, well i look at it like this you know you have uh, all right let's take the the scripture you know eternity has been placed in the hearts of men you know or of all men so in other words, that tells you, or whether you're you're looking at what Paul says in Romans one, where it says the invisible attributes are, are seen by all that they know. So in other words, this stuff is already in you. You we yes, it is true. The Bible tells us we are at enmity with God when we first come into this world, but we still have those things put into us from the start. So in other words, you're not you're not coming into the game without being a lippard is that that eternity has been placed in your heart from the get-go then there's something there that's going to then make you ask questions and that's what i see going on in the genre that i'm in i see a whole oh that there's something there but can't quite get their hands around it or their head wrapped around it or but that be with us i mean i see it totally differently now i Mm -hmm. again you know when i first started and I was looking at it from a worldly perspective, but um, you know, like I said, when that veil has been really taken away, you see, you see things totally different. You know, to a point where it was getting hard for me um, to do shows a lot of times, especially when you do big shows. You know, you're doing festivals, you're standing there in front of fifty thousand people, 
and I'd stand there, and, and it was getting depressing because I'd think to myself, every one of them's going to hell. And it got really, really difficult. I didn't, you know, at the time, I'm thinking, is this amphetamine? And I'm after a run of some festivals, and I was, I was pretty upset about it. And I don't know why, but I just sat down and I read the book of Philippians. You know, it's a, it's a short little book. It takes 45 minutes to read it. And uh, I read it, <clears throat> closed it up, went to sleep that night, woke up next day, and it's never bothered me since. Now, I don't know what there is in Philippians that is specifically tied to what we're talking about. I've gone back and looked at it since a number of times. I can't find anything in there that's directly related to what we're talking about now. All I know is that, like I said, I closed that book up that night, I went to sleep, and it's not bothered me since. Hmm. Talk about the word. <laughs> yeah, that thing is alive. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. I, I'm also reminded of a, a conversation I had a number of years ago, uh, actually at this point, with Fieldy, the bass player from Corn, And this was shortly after Head had left the band and, and had become a Christian and so on. And... Um, Long story short, I was in an interview setting with the band, and I ended up having a kind of a private conversation at the time, at the time with Fieldy um, and off camera, and he started to explain to me that he himself had actually come to Christ. Now I'm talking about this now because he's now very outspoken about it, and he's even he's got right. a crucifix tattooed on his face. But at the time, uh, it, it was still pretty quiet, and of course, you know, head had been in the headlines, and what he said to me was, you know, I respect. Uh, head and where he's at and his journey and everything and on his walk and leaving the band and that was the right thing to do for him he said for me the right thing to do is to stay in the band because um, you know I've been given this gift of this uh, this mouthpiece or whatever you want to call it and I, I remember him saying to me um, what I have right now uh, is a sword and if and if I were to leave here I have a butter knife you know have such an opportunity well, yeah, to connect because... with people you know yeah. Now, I certainly don't mean to to compare myself to Paul, but anybody that's doing what we're doing in the genre that we're doing, I said Paul, excuse me, uh, John the Baptist, mm -hmm. when, I mean, I'll be honest, there's times where you feel like the voice of one crying in the wilderness, you know, and that, I'm not exaggerating this, you know, and you start to ask yourself, the first thing you ask yourself is, it took me from the time that I was praying that one prayer on my knees and I said, Lord, do you want me to stay here? It took me about two years from that point to really start to understand that, yes, I was doing what I was supposed to do. Because for that two years after that, I kept thinking, this can't be right. This just cannot be where I'm supposed to be. And then we had been, um, we had gone to, um, to Turkey, and we played a show in Izmir, and it was about, about 20, 30 miles outside of Izmir. And the hotel we were staying at, I didn't particularly care for it, so I asked the promoter, could I go back to town? And he says, yeah, he says, um, there's a, a Crown Plaza, he says, we'll put you up there, so... I went back to the hotel, and as I was standing in the lobby getting checked in, they, you know, they had the little brochures on the side of whatever the, the touristy stuff is. And I looked over on a pamphlet, and I saw the word Smyrna. 
And for those that are listening to this that don't know what that is, it's one of the seven churches in, in Revelation. And so I, it was also the, the church that I used to attend when I was a kid, too. So, oh, wow. You know, I see the name, and I thought, hmm, what's that? Well, I, I do a little more reading, and I discover that Ismir is the modern name for Smyrna. I am now literally standing in Smyrna and didn't know it. Hmm. And do a little more investigation. I'm 30 miles away from Ephesus. So now I am just doing backflips. I arrange a tour the next day because I had the day off. I go to Ephesus. I spend the day there. And that was one of those things that profoundly or has a profound effect on or at least it did on me. Because, you know, I was in the Colosseum where Paul had preached you know, a number of times the, in the book of Acts. It describes the riot as the silversmiths happened there. And you you can clearly see. I'm one of these guys that got a pretty vivid imagination. So I can sit in a place and I can literally kind of see this stuff playing out in front of me. But the thing that hit me more than anything being there was how the church per, uh, flourished under persecution and how this thing grew and thrived. And, you know, we look at America today and we say, okay, you know, how, can, how does the church have any chance? Hey, the Word of God will not fade away. You know, my Word does not return to me void. You know, so if these guys could do this in Ephesus, then anything is possible. So we go from Ephesus over the next couple of years. I find myself in Greece and a number of places. I'm at Mars Hill, uh, where Paul preached, you know, at uh, the Parthenon. Uh, I'm in Thessalonia or Thessalonica, you know, at the first church that was started there. One night we end up on the island of Crete. And this is where I was, was very close to where when Paul was on his way to Rome, they had been shipwrecked. And so I had the night off, and nothing was going on. So I went out to the beach by myself, and I there was a there was a bunch of huge rocks, six seven feet high, and so I climbed up on one of them, and I'm sitting there and I'm watching the sunset on the Adriatic Sea, and I'm praising God and I'm having just a, a good old time, and it hits me. I'm tracing Paul's steps. Wow. Wow. I got real quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, and I started, I'm on this rock, and I start backing up on the rock. And it's like, Lord, what's going on here? Why are you showing me all of this? And I started putting two and two together after that, and it's like, um Well, and you're talking about the, you're talking <laughs> about the book, the book of Acts, and it immediately makes me think about, you know, in the context of uh, the, the position that you're in and what we're talking about. Um, you know, Paul shaving his head, right? To Absolutely. Kind of, you know, that's, you know, immediately who are you, Lord? <laughs> you know, it's a, you know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, and it's like, and so I'm thinking, you know, why am I, why am I seeing all of this stuff? What, what am I being prepared for that's making me real uncomfortable right now? Because you don't know what you're getting called to do. And as it's been, it's, I'm not going to say that it hasn't been challenging because the thing that I've discovered over the this 10-year period or the last 10 years is that there have been things that the enemy has thrown at us you wouldn't believe. And it's stuff that I don't like talking about. Um, 
you know, when I studied the occult, I saw things in that that I couldn't explain at the time. And until, you know, I came back to my faith that now I recognize pretty pretty quickly. And so I've seen things that will happen to us when we're on tour, things that will happen when a tour is being put together. And I'm not talking about minor stuff. And, again, I don't want to go into detail about what it is because, I, A, number one, I don't like speaking over this stuff. I will just say this, that there has been stumbling blocks put in our way like you wouldn't believe. And to the point of testing to really, really, it's either going to do one of two things to you. It's, it's either going to fortify your faith or you're going to quit one or the other. And by the grace of God, so far, we, we've been able to hang in there. But there's been things that have come against us that, and I, and it's not just us, I'm sure. You know, it's with anybody that is going to try to proclaim the Word of God. You're going to stand on some stage somewhere and try to proclaim the Word of God. I discovered that it's it's one thing that if you're in a place like America where the church has been established for a long time, and I'm not saying that the enemy has totally surrendered that domain, but I've noticed there's a, a huge difference between what may come against a church in America and then you going into what I call the pit. Hmm. You go into the enemy's stronghold, buddy, you are going to get resistance. And there is no other way to describe it. You, He will fiercely come against you because he owns that domain that we're in now. And... You know, when Paul talks about putting on the whole armor of God, you can read that, and it sounds real nice. You know, the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, all that stuff. Sounds real good. But until you've gone through some of this stuff and you start to understand the intelligence and the viciousness of this creature that you're going up against, you better go back and you read that stuff again to understand exactly what you've got to do to get yourself ready to go into this. Because when Jesus tells Peter, Peter, I've, I have prayed for you. Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. That's a creature saying, I don't want to just hurt you. I don't want to just kill you. I want to turn, I want to put you in a blender and grind you up. That's what you're dealing with. And when you you start doing some of the stuff that we're doing now, and like I said, you take it into the pit and you start proclaiming this word, you're going to get you're in for a fight. And I'm not trying to scare anybody, you know, that's listening to this. You know, but Paul does tell us to count the cost. Well, these are things you don't know before you get into it. And like I said, I, I sometimes think of myself on that rock in Crete, you know, and realizing that I'm tracing his steps and I'm saying, Lord, what's this mean? And, uh, you know, it starts to be revealed to you a little bit at a time. By the grace of God, it wasn't all dumped on me at once because I'm, I'm, I have no qualms in telling you I couldn't have handled it. Hmm. But, um, 
you know, what happens over a little bit of time. You come back from, from doing one run, and, you know, it takes you a while to get over it, you know. And it wasn't until we just did this last tour that I started, when we were out on the road, I started looking at Paul, and you look at his writings, and he starts his letters, or any of his writings, he says, he starts out thanking people, thanking God, and he gets to the end of these books, and he talks about the times of refreshing, of the things that he had to do, and what I, when you stand back and you look at his cumulative writings, you start to realize this guy was not able to do this nonstop. He could do it for a while, and then he'd have to stop and regroup. He talks about the people who refreshed him, you know, the the brothers that refreshed him at the time. This guy, because of what he, and I, again, I am not trying to, to compare ourselves to him, you know, what he went through five times, 39 lashes and stoning and all of that. I, I'm not saying we've gone through that. But there has been some stuff that has been pretty intense and uh, can be frightening to the point where you say, to yourself, my God has brought me this far. I know he's not going to leave me on the side of the road. Whatever happens, happens, and you put your head down and go. So it, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a growing experience. It's a learning experience. You know, one thing that I find very interesting that you referenced, um, and I'm reminded of some things that Dave Mustaine has said, you know, oftentimes I think, there's a misunderstanding that Christians in um, a rejection of the occult of, of witchcraft or, you know, Satan, the enemy, all of that stuff, whatever you want to call it, that there's a dismissal of it, that it's that it's uh, fictitious or um, silly or trivial or a novelty. And, you know, Dave Mustaine has spoken about how when he was dabbling with witchcraft, he saw things and he experienced things and there were, there were, oh, yeah. there were real things, you know, that he, he put a love spell and a hex on somebody and that that stuff worked. And I think, you know, when you talk about, um, the armor of God, you know, I think you were extrapolating it from, you know, a philosophical concept to something much more literal when you are out there experiencing, when you're in a position where it, where it's necessary and you need it. Well, you're in the foxhole. Yeah. And, and you know, that stuff is whizzing over the top of your head it seems like a good idea. It's not just, it's not just writing anymore. It's, it's, this is, this is what you need to survive. And this is written by a man who had gone through it repeatedly, you know, but what you're talking about, somebody doing incantations or casting spells, you know, the Bible clearly tells you the power of life and death is in the tongue. You know, we, we use the expression all the time and, you know, in our general lexicon in life, you know, speak of the devil and then he walks. People have no idea what they're saying when they say that. Wow. Because, you know, you go back and you look at what Saul did when he was chasing David, you know, and the Jews had been told clearly, don't mess around with that stuff. Well, what does Saul do? You know, he goes to, you know, a fortune teller. And, well, she's a witch, you know, and he's trying to, he, he's looking for the future. You know, he's, he's trying to get an edge on David. And when he does that, God tells him, okay, you've done it now. You, you know, your entire kingdom is going to be taken away from you. And you've effectively just signed your own death warrant. You know, so when you start doing that, like I said, when you, when you start using your mouth 
to speak over certain things, you absolutely have the ability to bring blessings, cursings, life, death. You know, if you look in the New Testament, in the book of James, when he goes into it extensively, you know, about that, that little little member, he says, that is in your mouth and the poison that can come out of it. I mean, people are doing this all the time. One of the things that was the hardest thing for me to do was to learn, relearn how to speak. You know, because when you're in the general culture, you know, be it, and it, let's say you're the kind of person that, that doesn't even use profanity. You know, you're not dropping F-bombs all over the place or just just general cursing. Um, You don't even have to do that. You can just be speaking over yourself in a negative way where you're inviting sickness, all kinds of things that can come against you. And like I said, when people don't understand they're doing that, they can get in trouble real quick. So again, it was it took me a long time to really relearn how to to speak, you know, because the Bible tells us, you know, out of the heart or out of the abundance of the heart, you know, we speak. So in other words, what's ever really in you, that's what's coming out. So it took me a long time to get a grip on that. You know, and somebody asked me, and they've asked me a number of times, well, why don't you do some of the old songs you used to do? And I said, well, you know, first of all, there's profanity involved in that, and the Bible tells us let no corrupt speech come out of your mouth. All right, but secondly, <clears throat> you know, just I'll put it in terms that you guys can understand. Why would I want to use a word that the, one of the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments tells me expressly not to do? that action. Why would I want to use a word that then turns around and describes it? Why would I want to do that? You know, and when you say it to people in those kind of, you know, in modern day layman's terms, they go, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> you know, so, and, but you know, one of the things I learned over time was that the Lord allowed me to have those things in my life because what happens is that by not playing them, it doesn't speak loudly. It screams loudly. So much what more, so much more loudly with. than the than the song ever. Than did the song in the ever place. did in the first yeah. place. Wow, and, and you know uh, something that this makes me think about this whole topic and and what you're talking about with what it says in scripture about the tongue and the and the power there. I've had conversations with. Uh, friends and acquaintances who are diehard atheists who believe that everything about the Christian faith is fairy tales and old myths and, and not applicable anymore. And science disproves every, every last bit of it. And then we'll turn around and in the same conversation, tell me how they were able to visualize things and manifest them or how they were able to talk about, you know, what they wanted to achieve with their business or their, their lifestyle or their personal life and how they, they spoke it into existence. And, and sometimes they'll even go as far as to say, you know, the universe did this or the universe did that. And it's so funny to me because it's, it's like, you know, you're dismissing all of this outright when you're hearing it in a certain context and that you're turning around and you're, you're clearly, you know, like you've, like you've said that the truth is, is actually written in there and, and everybody, you know, 
some people are clearly living lives <laughs> with an understanding well, of these rules, even as they claim to be uh, rejecting them. All right, let's start with a basic fundamental truth. Psalms. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Okay, let's start with that basic truth. People ask me, they go, well, what happened to you in that 20-year journey? How would you get from point A to point B to where you are now? And I go, well, <clears throat> as I was saying before, this is a journey I had to take of my own. All these things you're talking about, atheists do, man, I went through all that. I walked all of that. I was right where they were, maybe worse, because I had already had this indoctrination growing up. So I already, I've, I've wondered many times would I, or someone like me, have been better off had they not heard anything at all, because at least you wouldn't be coming from a perspective of prejudice over it. Hmm. So, like I said, I go 20 years, realize I'm not mad at God, I'm mad at man for everything that's happening. So I now, this, you know, there's a, in the movie Forrest Gump, where Gary Sinise is in, there in the boat and the hurricane's coming, and he's up on the top of that mast by himself, and he goes, Come on, God, it's just you and me. Mm -hmm. Well, that was me. Mm. And, buddy, we're going to have a showdown. However long it takes, I got to know the truth. And if this is hogwash, I'll know it once and for all, and I'll be able to walk away from it. Okay? Period of years then goes by, a few more years. Now I'm starting to read the Bible. I'm reading other things, other, other faiths as well. But I'm reading the Bible. You start to then discover 66 books written by 40 different authors spread over about a 2,500-year period over three different continents. The guys in the New Testament mostly knew each other, but the guys in the Old Testament had very little knowledge, if any, of each other. But when you read their writings, they're answering each other's questions. I'll give you a specific example, and I can do this with a number of verses, and I'm not saying that that sounds like I'm bragging. I don't mean to. No, I know what you mean. Like <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I'll, I will give you a specific example. <clears throat> In Jeremiah, when it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? Okay, we look at that verse and we go, wow, that's pretty mm -hmm. intense. You know, as from a writer's perspective, I look at that deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You know, when we write as writers, we we use we put a sentence together. When we're trying to get maximum value at something. We're looking at word value, and to get the most bang for the buck in any sentence in a lyric that you may use, you're looking for maximum word value desperately wicked. Think about that for a second. Mm. That is a powerful statement. Okay, if we go back and we take that verse and we look at the word deceitful, in the Hebrew, it means illicit. We look at that word, okay, and this is getting a little technical, but in Hebrew, Hebrew is similar to Greek in the sense, and this is the reason the Bible was written in these two languages, because in, like in Greek, to verify the definition of any word, you have to have five other words that agree with it. So in other words, it has a specific word 
will have to have five others that agree with it so you understand the exact definition of that word. Okay, with the word of, um, deceitful in Hebrew meaning illicit, that word goes back to the book of Genesis. It's specifically tied to Jacob's heel. That is then mentioned two other times in the book of Proverbs, once in Ecclesiastes. So you have four other verses that are tied to one specific verse in Jeremiah. Now, this may just kind of blow over the top of somebody's head with what I'm saying right now. I'm saying all that to say this. What you have in this one specific verse in Jeremiah is being not just talked about in four other places in the Bible. It's giving you specific reference of a person. It's like taking pieces of a, of a puzzle that you can't see how they... Imagine trying to do... Uh, somebody gives you a 10,000-piece puzzle of a wheat field and says, make this work. That's what this is like. And you just happen to pull the four pieces together that then say amen to this one verse we're talking about. For a man to have written this, and this is the argument that you hear over and over and over and over. Oh, well, the Bible is written by a bunch of men. I'm reading this stuff, and one day it hits me. I am reading the infallible word of the living God. It is beyond impossible that any man could write this. It is not possible. And when you start to break that down, it then starts to break you down. It takes you to school. And it is just remarkable. So when you get to that point, like I said, I was one of those guys viciously trying to disprove it for my own peace of mind. I mean, I was having some real wars with it, doing my best to get away from it. And the more I pushed it, the more it pushed me. And so that explains how I got to where I am now. But And then when you continue to study, the things that, that really initially brought me back to faith, you then discover I was only scratching the surface, that it was so much more in-depth than I could even realize. But it was, over a couple-year period, it was enough to convince me that it was beyond impossible for this to be written by men. You know, the Bible tells us that all word is God-breathed, you know, that it's all inspired. So if we're going to believe that, you're either going to believe it all or you're going to believe none of it. You know, and then you hear atheists give you this argument, well, Jesus was a good man, you know, but he, he was just a philosopher and that's better. No, he tells you over and over, I am the son of the living God. So after you've heard that over and over, and he, you know, he says, if you ask in my name, if you do this in my name, my name, my name, there is the name that is above all other names. He's telling you one of three things. He is what we refer to as the three L's. He's either a liar or a lunatic or he's the Lord. 
I was just about to say that the C.S. Lewis thing, which I think dates back even even earlier to the 17, 1800s. Um, yeah, that the trilemma, liar, right. lunatic, or Lord. Yeah. And you, when you're going to study this, and you're going to get real with yourself, and that, and I underline that to get real with yourself, because you can sit and spew all this stuff all day long. You know, there is no God. I don't believe this. It was written by men. Uh, no, you can say that stuff all day long. You don't know what you're talking about. Any good apologist, and for people that don't know what, a, what an apologist is, it's not what it sounds like it is. It comes from the word apologia. We refer to it in modern Christianity as apologetics. It means to really be able to give a defense of you know, what Paul tells Timothy in Second Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved by God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So in other words, you study this stuff enough to where somebody comes at you with these arguments, you can put them down. And there's a lot of guys that are really good. But if you look at guys like Frank Turek and people like that, uh, Chuck Missler, you know, if you've ever seen him debate David, uh, Richard Dawkins or any of these people, they mop the floor with these guys. I mean, they, they cannot stand up to them. I mean, these are true men of God that understand the word, I mean, inside and out. And you can't, uh, like I said, they'll mop the floor with these guys every time they do it. I've watched it over and over again. It's like looking at a big kid beating up on a little kid. It really is, you know, but again, I understand the perspective of where atheists are coming from. I really do. But if we are to believe that that measure of faith has been given to all men and that that, that truth has been placed in the heart of all men, when we come into the world, that tells you that there is an inkling of something inside you to start with. Then if you want to resist it after that, that's your business. You know, you can do that. But I've yet to meet anybody as far as that, that claims they were an atheist. I've yet to meet anybody who's ever really studied the Bible in any serious capacity. You know, they'll cite a couple of things that they've heard, you know, and they say, well, you know, there's, there, there's uh, mistakes all over the Bible. Oh, really? Give me one. Well, you know, I've heard that, that uh, no, 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 no. That's not what I said. Give me one example. And they usually can't. You know, so what they're doing is because, you know, we're going back to Jeremiah. The heart is desperately wicked. <laughs> and, you know, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, when it says who can know it, it doesn't mean just, you know, I don't know my, my brother's heart or the guy down the street. No, you don't even know your own heart. And that's really what we're dealing with here. And if you're going to get real about trying to find out the truth, you have to face this yourself. And that is the only way you're going to do it. You can live in the dark all you want, but you're not being truthful with yourself because... You know, in addition to everything I just said about what I went through, um, you, you also discover when you start looking at other faiths that uh, Christianity 
is the only one that's not works-based. Every other religion that's out there is all based on works. You know, so it is the only one, you know, you know, uh, what's Ephesians say? Uh, it says, by, by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not a gift. It is the gift. You know, not of works, least any man should boast. You know, so, again, either you believe this all or you believe none of it. You take it all or you take none. Because if it is indeed the infallible word of God, then there's not going to be any mistakes in it. Now, is there things that even educated theologians struggle with sometimes? Absolutely. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we don't. But one thing I've discovered is that if we're faced with something that we can't answer, if you dig hard enough and long enough, you'll find an answer. We, you know, we were talking about Kiss earlier, and and, and obviously there's a, you know, I think as fans we've always associated Wasp and that lineage of, of Kiss and Alice Cooper, and of course, um, Alice Cooper came to Christ and has been, um, you know, pretty outspoken about it, and I think has had similar dilemmas with. Uh, some of the the old catalog and and came to the same conclusions. I'm curious. Um, do you have a r- relationship with Alice? I mean, I know you. I know you've. Yeah, you've we've met talked about this. Um, yeah, 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 we've talked about. It. I mean, one of the things that him and I both agreed on is that if you go back and you look at some of our early writings, this stuff was laced with it. Right. You know, it's, right. It's, we were we we're in denial. You know, I mean, his father was a pastor. You know, but again, you know, like you were saying about Bono, you can run from it, but you can't hide, (laughs) you know, I mean, that's what it is. So again, you know, we both agreed that, you know, we were doing it, we were talking about it, writing about it, you know, but we weren't really bringing it head on. You know, I remember, you know, when I, we did the album Headless Children, the title track, the opening line says, Father, come save us from this madness. We're under God of creation. Are we blind? Now, I'm writing that from a perspective, not of faith, you know, and that, that's still, that's kind of like what you were saying about the atheists a while ago. Yeah, but I feel like there's something cosmic in the universe. That is done. Well, there, you're doing it and don't realize you're doing it because <laughs> yeah. that word has been placed in you. And, you know, the old-fashioned expression, you're telling on yourself, <laughs> well, that's what it is. No doubt. And, you know, it, that's... That's one of my favorite ones lately is when people talk about these these greater truths and these uh, these things that they're tapping into. And, and Don't you and, just love all of that? Well, my truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth. And you say to them, is that true? <laughs> 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 really? Okay, well, uh, yeah, well, uh, 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 really, you know? It's, well, how did you come to that conclusion? You know, it's like, and they just stand there and they go, uh, um, yeah, but, yeah, but, <laughs> you know, and it's like, no, it doesn't work. That's like saying, well, you know, if Hitler did whatever he wanted to do, that was his truth. Did that make it right? And then you see him always just stand there flat footed, you know, no, there is, a, <laughs> you know, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, the truth, you know, he's not joking. You know, it is. You can't get around this. And like I said, you can choose to not look at it if you want. But that's your choice. You know, it gets in, boy, this is a deep subject. I don't know if you want to get into it. But um, 
I am not a Calvinist where I believe in predestination. You know, mm. the Bible tells us over yeah. and over and over that you have choice. But, and again, I don't know if you want to get into this. Yeah, the whole Cal- Calvinist um, and neo-Calvinist and all that. A lot of that stuff is still persistent in the modern in the modern uh, American well, evangelical. You know, if thing. you look at you know if you look at a, at a verse like the Romans eight, <clears throat> uh, you know it says. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That's where that verse, or that's where that thinking comes from, is that verse. But if you look at that verse carefully, and you start to understand, and again, this gets really complicated. But if you start to to look at uh, space-time continuum, uh, effectively, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity of, of time and space being curved, that you start to understand that the dimension that we're living in now is not the only one that's going on simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So there is a pretty good possibility, and and I've not heard anybody else talk about this in depth, and this is this is purely my own thoughts, and if somebody says I'm off base, then I'm off base. But uh, if you look at some of the other verses that talk about, or that even use the word predestination, you can't get around the word that comes before that, when it says, for whom he foreknew. That tells me that something else was going on. You know, it also, the Bible says, I knew you before the foundations of the earth. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean he kind of knew eventually what we were going to be like? Mm. Or was there something that actually happened a long time ago where we somehow were came into being some way i don't know and i'm not going to sit up here and try to tell anybody i do because i don't or that idea but, that maybe everything that has happened or will happen is happening okay <laughs> all you know all, right. all if, at the same but if time you look right? at the, the calvinist idea of predestination which i don't believe uh then then that tells you that every, well if you look at that verse a little further um for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, where it gets interesting is where it, when it goes on past that, it says, for whom he predestined, these he also called, and for those he called, he justified, and for those he justified, he also glorified. Wow, that's a mouthful. That's that is like, you know, rolling out your life in front of you as to who you're going to be, how you're going to be, you know, all of these things. But it kind of leads you to the thought, is it possible? And again, I'm just I'm just throwing this out for consideration. Is it possible, looking at this, this is Romans 8.28, is it possible that maybe that we're here on this earth right now living our lives out in real time, time as we know it. Because, you know, the Bible says God is outside of time. So whatever that dimension is, we don't understand that. We only understand what we're here right now. Is it possible that we're living out our lives in real time so that if we do not choose to be with God, that on when the judgment comes, he will then say, Okay, yes, I knew who you were, and I knew what your personality was, but I allowed you to play this out in real time, 
so you could see for yourself what you did or did not do. Mm. In other words, it, it would be the kind of thing where God says, well, I'm going to condemn you before you even get a chance. No, he's going to say, I gave you an entire lifetime to play it out in real time for yourself. And then you said, no, you don't want to be with me. All right, that's your choice. Now, again, that, that's a personal theory. I could be a million miles off. But if you look at it or look at Romans 8.28, and I've looked at that verse a, a lot of times. There's some interesting concepts in it. And then if you get into Revelation, you know, where it starts talking about the different dimensions that we're in. I mean, we know the five, you know, height, width, depth, time, space, you know, and we know that those can be curved. I remember one day, you know, I used to, I used to live up in uh, in the Hollywood Hills and where I was living at the time, I had a studio up there, and when I'd go over to the studio, uh, I could see down on the road. I was up about a thousand feet up over the road, but I could see the road down below us. And you'd see, I could see that road for maybe two miles. Mm -hmm. And you, at rush hour traffic, you could see one car that was way ahead of another one that was just coming into view. And you'd think to yourself, huh, that's interesting. Both these guys are traveling the same road. But neither one has knowledge of each other, but yet they're getting to the same place, but they're getting there at different times. And I thought to myself, you know, I can see this because of my vantage point. Mm. Mm. Now, if that is a little minuscule snapshot, and I say minuscule, like many, 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 if that is really a minuscule snapshot of what time-space curvature is, if you had the proper vantage point, meaning God's, then you could see everything from the beginning to the end. Wow. That's interesting. That's very interesting. I like that analogy of, of standing on the hill looking at the road. That's, that's like vivid. I that's mean, vivid. it was only yeah. a couple of miles apart. Yeah, no, it's They had no vivid. knowledge of each other. One was getting to the space sooner than the other. And it's all happening in real time, you know, and it's, it got me thinking, you know. So, again, you know, it's, and it's just a personal theory. I could be off base on this. Yeah. But looking at the concept of space-time continuum, time being curved, and we know that scientifically as a fact. The, you know, the old story about the guy going to Mars and he comes back and he's younger than he was mm -hmm. before he left. Mm -hmm. You know, well, that's what we're talking about here. But a much bigger picture than the little snapshot that I had. Wow. Yeah, that's like, uh, did you ever see the movie Interstellar? You know, my wife and I were talking. I've never seen it, but, you know, I was telling her about this a while back, and she says, well, you're describing this movie. I thought, like, <laughs> yeah, it, it it gets into this. And there's and without, I thought, wow, yeah. the guy poached me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with, and without giving anything away, there, there's definitely a scene where one character you know, uh, isn't aging, you know, a year's passing or whatever, and decades are mm -hmm. pass, passing back on earth. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's all this sort of stuff, you know, it's fascinating, fascinating. And to think that anyone would, uh, pretend to have it all neatly figured out <laughs> these huge concepts, you know, uh, well, I'm getting way past Christianity 101 here, you know, um, but when you start to, to really dig into it, if you're dealing with an omniscient, omnipresent God, uh, 
that hears everything, sees everything. Um, you're dealing with a God that has the ability to do a whole lot of things all at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, and Paul tells us when we see Christ, we will be like him. And I've often thought we're going to look back at life here on earth and it's going to look like a flat black and white picture versus a color 3D picture. And even the color 3D picture won't be accurate to describe probably what we're going to see. Because if we're going to be like him, we'll be able to do the things he's doing. And that means being in several places at the same time. You know, for those that don't understand any of this, it sounds like I'm talking hocus pocus right now. But when when you learn to look beyond what you see with your human eyes right now, and you try to look at it from a more advanced biblical perspective, what I'm trying to say is anything is possible. And we are not, we cannot conceive. You know, Paul says that when he was called up to the third heaven, he says, no eye has seen nor ear has heard the things that await those for those that believe. You know, so, and he's he's giving you, wordage that you can understand because he can't write anything that he can't conceptualize. The same thing when John says in Revelation, you know, that he says, I was only allowed to give you a certain amount because he didn't have words to describe the things that he was seeing. You know, so we are, we Mm -hmm. too are limited in that sense. And so I guess we've said all that to say that, you know, Paul says it is impossible to please God without faith. You know, the, we walk by faith, not by sight. Well, that's what it boils down to. But I mean, there, know, I mean, there are invisible mechanisms and in place right now that are allowing you and I to speak to each other from our respective yeah, places don't see right those. now. You know? Yeah, right. people don't see those. So what's the difference? You know, it's yeah. like, for me, it's not a huge leap of faith. Yeah. You know, because when you start to understand that. All these things that we don't understand are possible. You know, that's like, you know, an atheist saying, well, I don't believe in God. Well, you don't have to believe in gravity either. But it doesn't <laughs> matter what you believe. You know, it's still, you're not going to repudiate it. Yeah, gra- gravity gravity believes in you. <laughs> yeah, jump off that cliff and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, like, I, oops. I love the idea that... Um... You know, much as like a child in the womb couldn't possibly conceive of what life outside of the womb is like and what that experience and that perception of reality is versus what what's known in the womb. And yet that child is developing, you know, all of the tools that will be necessary to experience and, and navigate this side of it. So, you know, I love the idea that uh, this life and an afterlife are very similar where we, we are, we can't really comprehend what that experience is like. And yet we're, we're developing and shaping, you know, what well, we Romans eight twenty eight is, is absolutely accurate. He says to those he foreknew that, I mean, to me, that verse hinges on that word, mm. not because it goes on to say after that to those, he also predestined. Okay. But foreknew is the word for me. That's you know that's like okay what's really going on here, what happened, how did this happen? So if that is true, that goes back even further than the womb. Mm. But the concepts are the same because you didn't know it before and you aren't going to know it later until you get there. 
you know so you're absolutely right in that sense yeah and i think i think like you said it's it's very likely that um this experience that we're that we're having now is yeah like you said going to seem like a a flat black and white picture versus a <laughs> virtual reality headset <laughs> yeah. the, the idea and i could again i could be wrong but i think the idea of us living our lives here in real time i think it's more for us i don't think it's for god at all hmm. i think it's it's absolutely designed so god can say i gave you every possible chance and you still said you didn't want to be with me. You know, it's really, I think it's that simple. Yeah, and that gets into that if you love someone, set them free. And, 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 yep. And he's, uh, yeah, because how are you going to make somebody love you? You know, I mean, that's that's really what this is all about, because obviously, the you know, with what happened with the angels, you know, a third of the angels, there was a riot in heaven. You know, so you got a third of the angels and Lucifer being cast out, Something pretty hairy happened, you know, so, you know, if they don't have free will, then they're robots. Hmm. And, you know, I'll tell you, we've, we've gone in some pretty deep subjects here. I love it. You know, but Paul, <laughs> Paul tells you, you know, you can do this and you can do that. But if you don't have love, you're a clanging symbol. Hmm. And I'm lying in bed the other night, you know, and I'm... You know, you, you like to have quiet time with the Lord. And we everybody knows John 3.16, you know, it's referred to as the little Bible. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. <clears throat> and, I'm, and I'm going through it in my head, and I just, the first few words, for God so loved the world. Stop. Think about that for a second. You know, David says in Psalms, he goes, Who is man, Lord, that you are mindful of him? In other words, you are so big, you are so great. How could, what do we possibly have to offer you that would be of any value whatsoever? What is it that we have that you want? And when you look back at John 3.16, for God so and so we were talking about word value as writers. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty powerful word. Little, but it's powerful. For God so loved the world. I don't think that there's any other way to sum this whole life experience up than that. I think that's what it's all about. And I have been asking over a period of years now, Lord, show me this. I am I'm mortal. I cannot comprehend the depth of your love. And I'm asking for that, and I'm starting to get glimpses of it. I know while I'm, you know, in this earthly body that I will never understand it or comprehend it, you know, the way that it's intended to be. But... It really, the whole thing hinges on that, for God so loved the world. Now, I understand the arguments that people use about, well, you know, if that's the case, why does God allow, you know, all the things in the world that he does? Well, hey, let's put put blame where blame is due. Wasn't God that did this? 
You know, man was brought into this world and he was given choice. And he made his choice of what he wanted to do. That is really, really hard for atheists to wrap their heads around. Because, again, if we go back to Romans 8.28, to those who foreknew, those who predestined, somebody was saying, well, what's this all about if God knew what it was going to be? Because without you being able to make your totally free choice, free will, that is the only way you can prove to God where your heart really is. And I know that that concept to people that don't believe, they have a hard time wrapping their head around it. And like I said, I had to do it almost from an intellectual perspective where I had to go get the arguments. I kind of worked backwards. You know, I had to go get the arguments settled in my head first. And then when I did, then I was able to look at it, like I said, like a level playing field without the prejudice. Mm-hmm. And once once I was able to get back to zero, kind of, um, then I was able to start to understand some of this other stuff. But I had to go the intellectual route first where I had to, you know, Gary Sinise sitting in the, in the crow's nest, you know, shaking his fist at God. I had, I had to do all of that. Yeah. And to, and to bring his full circle to what you were talking about, love, you know, uh, of course, is also, you know, there's John 3.16, the little Bible, like you said. And then there's, you know, Matthew 22, the greatest of all commandments and the and the second of all. And, you know, and how all, right. all, all dep- it all depends on those two. And love is at the center of those. So. So this is the story of the little boy from the swamp. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, perfect. Um, well, I, can't, I can't think of a better better spot to wrap us up. Well, I'm so glad you were able to do this. I, uh, I, I, I chased and chased because I, I knew it would be a good conversation and a rewarding conversation. I didn't know it would, it would be quite this this dense. And for that, I'm very appreciative because that's, that's always the hope. We could so. talk for hours on a lot of these subjects. Indeed. You know, I just, I mean, and for those listening, we've just scratched the surface here. I mean, it, it is way more in-depth than we've even attempted to go into here. But for a crash course, this is kind of, you know, gives you an idea, you know, of if, you, the, if you're a person that's questioning who you are and if there's any relativity to anything we've been talking about, you know, to go look for yourself. Because, you know, you, you came into this world alone, you're going out alone, you're going to stand before your maker when you do this. And you've, you've got to, you owe it to yourself to find the truth. And I would think like most guys, you know, whether, you know, you mentioned C.S. Lewis a while ago, you know, there's a lot of guys that, that walk this route. You know, this guy was hardcore, didn't want to know about it. Probably the greatest Christian philosopher, um, I would say, ever. You know, I mean, the, the, the man was truly ordained by God. Now, I'm talking about somebody outside of the Bible now, and I'm talking strictly sure. Christian philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the man had a way of putting things into words that is not just poetic and profound, it's jaw-dropping, making you stop in your tracks to look at what he's saying and then go back and compare it to what the Bible says. And this guy was a hardcore atheist, you know, and there are, there are many of us out there that had to walk this walk first to get to where we are. 
you know, and, and the Lord knows all of that. You know, and, you know, if we go back to the concept of love, wouldn't you want somebody to do that as opposed to just, okay, Lord, I think I love you, and that'll be cool. Right. You know, no, you want, you want someone to, to seek it out, you know, and, and to really get to the truth. And at the end, that truth is the only thing that's left standing. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And you, like I said, you can sit, you can argue this until you're blue in the face, man. I done done it. And you won't win. You will not. Your arm's too short to box with God. And I think what's great, uh, you know, if there is a th- as much as we can talk about the wandering and, and so on, there is a through line through your art and the body of work that, that you have in that you, you have always encouraged people to seek the truth and, and seek out, you know, be their own person and, and stand up for yourself and, and well, when figure we say it that out. truth, we're not talking about your, you know, that guy's truth or my truth, or, or you know, we're talking about the truth, you know, because again, you know, well, you know, well, my truth is my truth. Well, is that true? You know, it's like, and then watch the look on their face. Well, Blackie, thanks so much, and uh, I, I would, I'd love to have you back on again. Um, anytime you're you on know, that, so. uh, yeah, I mean, I've had a ball doing this here, you know, so. Um, you know, we got something to talk about, or you got something you want to discuss, let me know. We'll go from there. I love it. Well, thanks so Thank much. Thank you, Ryan, for, for taking the time, buddy. I sure appreciate it. 